everyone, and welcome to yet another edition of European Startup Show, where every week I talk to exciting startups in Europe to learn more about their challenges and strategies they use to scale their business. My guest today is someone from travel, Travis Pittman, who is the founder and CEO of Tour Radar. Travis co-founded Tour Radar with his brother, Sean, in 2010 with a mission to connect people to life-enriching travel experiences. Under his leadership, Tour Radar has grown into the largest online travel agency for multi-day tours in the world, with tour offerings in over 200 countries and office locations across Europe, North America, and Australia. Welcome, Travis. Thanks for having me. So maybe we'll start off with a little bit about how did you get from Australia to now Vienna? Absolutely. So uh, originally from Cairns, uh, which is a small place uh, on the east coast of Australia. And uh, I actually went to Brisbane in a university and then moved to London back in 2003. So uh, a long time ago now. I was uh, an engineer by trade. I got got, uh, basically talked into it by my brother, uh, so who's also the co-founder. He moved over before me and said how great (laughs) it was to be in London for traveling and work and just life experiences, really. Uh, And also back then, the pound was actually three Aussie dollars to one pound. So it was a nice sort of financial thing. Yeah, in my travels, I actually got to meet a Austrian girl and that was in Barcelona, actually. So I ended up coming here to, to Austria, to Vienna, not knowing anyone and set up my life here. And the rest is history and uh, just basically been building up uh, the business between here and Australia and now also North America. But yeah, it's been a, been a fun, fun time, lots of ups and downs. It's good to be here and hopefully can share some of those today. Lovely. <laughs> Definitely one of those global citizens, Australia, Barcelona, Austria. That's fantastic. So I actually worked for another company where the co-founders were brothers and I'm curious to hear Is that something that you always thought you would do with your brother? Or did it just happen? Yeah, no, I wouldn't say it's something that we said, oh, we're definitely going to do like this together. I guess the entrepreneurial spirit comes from my parents. They were always sort of self-employed and always doing things. And he's in finance. uh, So he was actually in London working for a venture capital firm. And I'm an engineer and I got very much into the tech side of things. I was, you know, learning how to code websites and, and different things. Once we got to London and then we started living together, uh, a few things sort of came and uh, aligned and, and we thought, well, you know, why don't we give it a go? And I don't think we had any idea what we were getting in for. <laughs> I think that's the benefit of uh, being naive in the early days. And for sure, I mean, we've definitely had our ups and downs. I think uh, you talk to some co-founders and, and there's always... Do you know if that co-founder is always going to be around or will they support you through the bad times? And then, you know, will you always right. kind of come together? And I guess that's a benefit of being a family is that you kind of have to make it work um, in, in some ways. Is there any advice you would give to other entrepreneurs who are thinking about starting something with someone that they're related to? I, I think if you are going into this, you should try, set some ground rules from the beginning uh, a little bit. Like, so, you know, we will have times where we don't speak about work at all, you know, and then we definitely still have to re- keep some normality yeah. or, or something like that. But otherwise, no, I'd say it's uh, alignment. I think healthy debate is good. And I think just uh, I'd probably recommend that if yeah. you can't have some sort of healthy debate with that uh, sibling or whatever it is, and it only escalates to be nuclear, then you may want to reconsider <laughs> if that's a, the right thing. Yeah. <laughs> See, I think that's a very valuable piece of advice um, in terms of testing out whether you should go into business yeah. with them or not. You know, how do you debate? How do you fight? 
cool. Okay. All right. Let's turn to the actual topic of, of the show today, which is the travel industry. So obviously it's no secret that the travel industry has had the biggest hit due to the pandemic. And the bad news, I feel, continues to come on a regular frequency with big companies like Virgin Atlantic filing for the bankruptcy and probably smaller tour operators that you work with going out of business. So my first question is, how have you dealt with all this uncertainty and fear that must be consuming your employees, your investors and your customers? It's hard to bring it down to a few words or a few sort of sentences, but it's yeah, definitely been the most challenging thing that we've had to, to deal with full stop. And, and there's been some big challenges along the way. The uncertainty, I think, is the killer in terms of team morale, in terms of keeping people motivated and coming to work and delivering and, and wanting to deliver. I think the quicker you can make the tough decisions that need to happen. And that's what we did pretty early. There was advice from the investors because they were seeing it all around. And they're like, okay, you need to get this sorted. If you look in hindsight, there's how long and how big this has become. And, and still, even today, it's still unknown. We did a lot of things right. There's still some things we definitely yep. could have done differently or, or better. We unfortunately had to make some layoffs in the very beginning just to trim down the team. Because I think that's a, the difference between, say, a, I guess, a scale-up like us, where you do have revenues, significant revenues, and you do have significant team costs. Whereas with a, an early stage startup, you may not have any, any revenues yet. You're still trying to work that out. So you've built into your finance, your planning and everything. And when a significant chunk of revenue disappears just instantly, then that sort of starts to, yeah. to eat into your runway and different things like that. So some serious decisions needed to be made there around how to survive and, and keep going. The team around me, like the, the leadership team, we were doing daily stand-ups every day and people were dialing in from North America, Brisbane and Vienna every day for like basically six to eight weeks or something. And it was, so it was really the team around me, uh, we wouldn't have got through it uh, without them. And then that definitely played a big factor in, in helping us through. So. What's, what was the daily stand-up um, for? Like what did it accomplish for you? At the time, every day felt like a week because it was just so much coming in from whether it was suppliers, whether it was from team, legal issues, like employment laws and whatever. So all these different things that do pop up when you're having to make drastic decisions. So it was just yeah. trying to somehow get alignment amongst the leadership team so we could make the best decisions possible. And then over time, it started to sort of get back to some sort of normality. And now we're doing only one call a week. So it's, yeah, you're trying to sort of scale it back because it gets very fatiguing as well. It's hard to keep people engaged yeah. and motivated yeah. that sort of thing as well so do you feel like there's something you've done right or that you you think you should have done let's start with employees for example to help keep their morale good question the one challenge we've had here uh, in austria is that there's uh, i mean it's helped us get through so it's it's not a bad thing it's it's called kurzarbeit and it's it's basically like short time work where you can put your employees into a reduced amount of hours where you get subsidies from the government. And, and mm -hmm. what that brings in is different people are on different levels. So some people are working 10% of the time, some people are working 50. And so it became very confusing, you know, who's doing what. And so I think if I could do things differently, uh, as, as harsh as it probably sounds, I probably would have said, okay, maybe we should have made some deeper cuts in the beginning. We could have then had more people motivated full time or, you know, actually working 
and going forward. So mm. it's a hard one. I mean, hindsight's a great thing to look at. We, you know, did have the benefit of this Kutsabo yeah. scheme. And in Australia, we have uh, JobKeeper in Toronto, there's WorkShare. So we got a lot of this support. It's just how do you keep people motivated when they're on a slightly lower salary, they've had to sacrifice and under enormous stress, you know, they're working from home as well. They've got kids, some people and whatever else. So yeah, that alignment um, between the team and motivation, I think we you know, could have possibly done it differently. What about investors? What about managing investors? What could you have done differently? A bit of advice I'd say is that over communicating with them is definitely important for them to understand that you're on top of it as best as you can be, you know, during such a situation and, and that the necessary areas are being looked into and being addressed. We, we did have to do an internal investment round to be able to get the funds to keep going forward and to come through the, the other side of this thing. And that was challenging because for you as a founder, to see the company revenues sort of overnight disappear. If you think of it, every uh, VC or angel investor they've got a portfolio of companies. And at the end of the day, there will be decisions that need to be made where they either put money into this one or they don't put money into this one. And so it's a bit of convincing that, you know, this is, this is going to work. You know, this, we, we will come out the other side uh, stronger and, and better. So you, you've got to still have the energy to, to provide the arguments and, and to say that we're worthy of, you know, getting further investment and that sort of thing. Yeah. And then if I think about customer service, I can't think of an industry that has had a bigger crash course in customer service and crisis management than the travel industry. What were some of the successful strategies for dealing with angry, frustrated customers? What can others learn from you on customer service and crisis management? It's funny, in Slack, we, we have some good news that people put in and just literally an hour before this call, they put in a, a recording that they've made of, you know, from the last, I think, about three or four weeks of calls with customers. And it really is, it's so heartwarming to see just how we've treated our customers. I mean, I, we can't do it perfectly for everyone. I'm sure there's some customers we haven't done uh, or that they don't feel that we've done the right thing by them. But I do know at our core, like one of our core values is customer first. And, and I can truly say that we did our best to do that during this. When we did have to consider the layoffs, we definitely said, well, we have to have full customer support. So we didn't lay off any customer support people because we wanted to get back to people fast. We wanted to provide them with the, the, the trust and we felt it. It was a a great brand building time where if we did this well, those people hopefully will be loyal to us and hopefully should spread the word. And I mean, the comments just in that, that recording just now were all about that, you know, saying we've told everyone about the great experience with you guys. Whereas with the airlines and whatever else been on hold for nine hours and, you know, I still don't know when I'm going to get my money back and everything like that. So the, the, sort of recurring comment and our NPS at the moment is 82, uh, which is just insane. So it shows that fast response times, the caring kind of you know, nature of the, the people we have working, that sometimes you can't resolve a problem because of whatever limitations, but they were trying to do everything they could to make that happen. So I, I think that was a, a big lesson that I'm really glad that we continued to invest into that and just didn't say, okay, well, let's cut the CS team by half or something like that. And then we have pissed off customers who are just spreading bad word. And then, you know, that only amplifies. So I think that that was definitely a positive. So in addition to very quick response times that you had, what else do you think contributed to that high NPS score? 
Our tech team was amazing. They identified really, it was like March 9th, I think it was, that one of the CS team flagged and said, look, if we could have a way of automatically converting bookings to credit, that we could then get more people across to credit without them having to pick up the phone, without them understanding, well, you know, what's happening with my booking. And so they implemented this thing that basically then became this fully automated process. And now all the tour operators have been saying how great that's been because they would just tell us, okay, August, September departures are now being cancelled. Can you just do an automated blast to, to everyone to say, look, either put it on credit or book a future date. You know, They can choose a different date next year. And then if they need to do a refund because of financial reasons, then we would go through that process. But what it did for the tour operators is that if they had that credit, then they didn't have to issue refunds. So that liquidity is so important for them. The positive feedback from our partners has been that we've done... And the numbers we've kind of you know compared ourselves with the industry is significantly better like, to help the operators save those bookings, so to speak. Uh, so again, it's a bit of a teamwork kind of thing. It's the CS team manually and empathetically uh, speaking to customers. And then with the tech team in the background, just trying to work out how can we automate as much of this stuff as possible. Right. Okay. Well, that's that sounds like a, a good way to to deal with it. And I do want to dig in a little bit into the payment that you were talking about too about suppliers. But before I go there, I wanted to just finish off this thread and ask you about how you're managing your own stress. So you're talking about all these stand-ups, all these issues at multiple levels coming at you all at the same time, you and your brother. How have you gone about managing stress in the last couple of months? Yeah, it certainly pushed the limits, that's for sure. Sleep was uh, definitely a luxury <laughs> for the first couple of weeks. But I, I, I do look at uh, a few things that I have done. And I mean, one big thing for me is uh, I've always been very active, very into mountain biking and running and, and sports in general. And I think that was actually a nice thing about Austria is that we were in lockdown, but you could still go to parks, you could still go to forests and stuff like that. And so, yeah, like jumped on my mountain bike probably two, three times a week and went running the other days or just walks. And I, I did start meditation stuff for a while and it definitely probably helped during the really tough times that I, I didn't continue it in the end. But the thing that has continued is doing some sort of physical exercise just to clear my head. Even half an hour definitely helps. Uh, but you know, sometimes you go for a longer mm. two or three hour ride. And the other thing that I'm actually doing on that is I use Audible quite a lot. I just have uh, headphones in and and so when you're just on yep. a ride and you're just listening to maybe a leadership book or something about the crisis or how you can actually deal with things. So you're also using that time, not just to clear your head and, and get the blood flowing, but also to learn a little bit too. And so I found myself reading a lot more books lately because of that. So. <laughs> wow, lovely. We have a, a part at the end where I ask you about that. So we can dig deeper. I love learning about what people have been reading. Okay, so... The reason I wanted to talk about the payment is when I went to your website and I looked at why tour radar, there was a section on payment. And I was curious when, as a consumer, I sign up for one of your multi-day tours, does my money immediately go to the suppliers? And how does that process work now in this new pandemic environment where there's so much uncertainty? When a customer makes a payment, now typically it's a deposit uh, payment initially. So because people book anywhere from three to 12 months out uh, for, for a multi-day tour. And and so the, the payment then, we're the merchant of records, a tour radar 
is the merchant record in this case. We hold the funds and at a certain date, depending on the operator's conditions, uh, before departure date, we then pull the balance mm -hmm. payment. Uh, so then we'll pull the other, say, 90% of the payment from the customer. And then depending on whether a tour operator is bonded with ABTA or whether there's maybe a more sort of smaller niche provider, like in one of the places around the world that don't have bonding, we actually hold the money of the customer until the departure date. Once the, the tour departs, uh, we then pay the supplier. So, so yeah, and I think the payment side is definitely an area that you know, with bonding and, and just all who who holds money where and when is definitely something that's come out in this pandemic. Going forward, there needs to be some changes. Like, you know, so in, in how that's done, either uh, the companies like us start to pioneer other ways of doing that to protect the customer or protect the operator, or if there's bot like associations. What's the problem right now? I feel it's uh, there's not enough clarity. Let's say one of the tour operators goes bankrupt today. The customer doesn't really know, do I go to the local bonding agency like ABTA? Do I go to Tour Radar as the merchant of record? Do I go directly to the tour operator? It's just not clear. The, the transparency is not there. Uh, and I think that can be mm. explained better. It mm. can be maybe more standardized uh, across how things work. And, and so I think there's, uh, there's definitely improvement. And we're, we're really you know, taking a lot of learnings from this. And can we protect the customer? How do we protect the operator? Protect us? Like, so how do we make it as best as win-win-win uh, sort of as possible where mm. you can still keep things flowing and, and everything like that? So yeah, it's not going to be solved overnight. I think it's definitely going to be an ongoing thing for the next uh, probably year or two before. But I think it's uh, definitely probably shaken things up uh, a little bit and will be definitely over time looked into more. Nice. Okay. I know that you recently conducted a survey of all your travelers which I thought was really interesting mm -hmm. to understand what the sentiment is around travel. So talk to me about what you learned from that survey and if that survey and what you learned from it has made you change how you operate in any way. We have very different segments of customers on Tourator. So we have everything from youth travelers through to adventure travelers, like families, and then into the, the more senior demographic. What the survey revealed was that for 2020, it's really the younger people who are kind of just saying, look, I don't mind taking the risk and just getting away. And because and, I'm just so pent up from being in lockdown for the last four, five, six months, whatever, I just want to get away. So we were finding that there was a lot more interest from younger people to travel earlier. Whereas for the, the older demographics, it was definitely, mm. we kind of want to wait until 2021. There should be some sort of vaccine on the horizon. Uh, there should be you know, definite you know, difference in standardized ways of hygiene and health and safety and different things like that. And through our own booking trends that we're seeing on the site that was sort of confirmed by the survey was around flexibility in bookings. And I think that was the, a massive thing that came up out of the pandemic is in the touring industry, there wasn't really flexibility. So if you wanted to cancel, you had to pay these fees and, and it was you know, very strict and there was never any changes really allowed. And so something mm. we've been driving forward and, and encouraging the tour operators to do is offer at least one free change and a second free change if they can. Because that mm -hmm. then gives the customer confidence to say, okay, I'm going to lock in March 2021. And then if 
whatever reason that it may not, they can then change that again. So it just gives them something yeah. to look forward to. But then, you know, they know that there's not going to be a huge amount of cost if they then have to push it back. And how are the tour operators reacting to that? It was a bit like, but then they realized that it just had to happen. Airlines offering that because I mean, airline, you can hardly ever change anything. And then when they were offering yeah. free changes, and so I was like, okay, like that's a, a pretty big shift. So I think the, the tour operators, you know, started to see that they needed to also offer this type of thing. And, you know, other, other sort of things we saw were if they could offer the same price of the tour that, you know, in 2020, in the 2021 departure, that was also a nice way for the, the travelers to say, okay, yeah, I'm, I'll book that now. So they, they could lock it in and, and for the same price. There was a bit of pushback there because clearly the, the volume, you know, they had and, and, you know, the costs and that are different what they were planning in 2019 for 2020, as opposed to what it actually will be in 2021. So they probably will take a bit of a hit there, but at least they're getting customers to remain loyal and to still go on the trips and that sort of thing. So there is a benefit uh, you know, that you can't just always look at it in a financial sense, you know, at, at that point. But what happens if I book something in 2021 and a part of that tour, the operator goes under? Yeah, we've had that already. Unfortunately, there's been uh, a handful of, of tour operators who haven't survived. And and to, again, because we're holding the the money, we then give the customer the option and say, look, here's another 500 different trips that you could potentially book. Or yeah, if they do want their yeah. money back, then it's, it is possible. Again, for the industry to keep going, we, we want to try and encourage people to keep the hope that they will be able to spend that cash actually built. So yeah, we try and uh, encourage them to book something else uh, with another provider. Yeah. Yeah. In addition to employee layoffs and and putting people on these work schemes, is anything else that you think you've done more innovatively to conserve cash? I wouldn't say innovatively than than anyone else, but it was more just a brutal line by line, every single cost. One of the things that when you're growing quite quickly and you, you have a lot of new people and a lot of things that's going on, subscriptions for tools. It's shiny and new. Let's try that. Or let's do that subscription. It's a 50 euros a month here. It's 500 euros. It's it, when you go through line, you realize that that that's, yeah. it does creep. And so I think that was a good exercise to go through and go, do we really yeah. need that? You know, do we really need that? And and so we have trimmed down a lot of stuff. And and the other one's office space. Like, you know, I think the remote working, it's just not needed. We're yeah. sitting in a, a massive office here in Vienna, which we were, you know, we'd got because we were ramping up and growing the team and, and you know, we'd planned to have a lot, lot more employees over the next few years. And now with remote work, it's kind of like, well, we don't need that big space anymore. And so it's uh, definitely something we've been negotiating uh, with the landlord of, you know, can we downsize and, and everything like that. So I think those things uh, have definitely shifted. Like, you know, it's not just about, you know, having a big office where everyone together. It's just now how do we make the office uh, a kind of social gathering almost uh, where you get people re-engaging and, and holding maybe brainstorming sessions or lunches or different things together. What I've found is the the remote has worked well, but that social capital and the bonds, it does start to degrade. And so you need to kind of keep topping it up. So what's your long-term strategy in terms of remote work culture? 
it's very flexible. So people can work from home. They can be in the office if they want. We are considering now actually going to a, a four-day working week because that's what we've been kind of having to do during this uh, short working time. And have found that people are very effective in four days. You know, do you really need to have people doing the the five days and you know, with the extra hours typically gained because of not having to commute? Every day, those extra hours can be put into work mm. instead of actually sitting on a, a tram or a train or something like that. So, so yeah, we're, there's a bunch of things that are still very much uh, floating around. But yeah, there's definitely things changed. <laughs> That's for sure. Yeah, I think we're going to see a lot of innovation in that work-life balance, remote working culture being much more of a open concept for a very lot of people that. that probably would never have considered it before. Okay, cool. I want to talk to you about a, a completely different topic, but also very relevant to the travel industry. And that's Google. Google is trying to become, I think, the Amazon of travel. I've seen various news articles about how Google treats its partners unfairly and it takes their data, their content to power its own competing products in the name of user convenience. I know that there are a few European travel companies that have actually taken legal action against Google on this. I was wondering what you thought about it. And I think what we did see during this time, again, when you're looking at costs and everything like that, when you go through line by line, uh, your subscriptions and different things, you negotiated with the vendors and, and they didn't want to lose the customers. So they were very forgiving generally where they'd say, okay, yeah, you don't need to pay for three months or you know, we'll defer the... Or we'll give you a 50% discount for the next six months or 12 months. So there was a lot of different negotiations with different vendors and partners across software in general. And of course, Google is a very hefty bill of ours that we uh, were paying before the pandemic. And uh, yeah, they unfortunately didn't show any lenience. And it was quite frustrating because the bills were you know, significant. It's not like the entire Google advertising world just got taken away. They had many, many customers yeah. who were still thriving during this time. I, I felt it wasn't really the right way of tackling it, to be honest either. Yeah. But in addition to the ad spend itself, if I'm able to say, I'm looking to go on a trip to Japan, and if Google is able to show me the information, and I don't even have to go to Tour Radar, is this a worrisome trend for you? Is this something that keeps you up at night? And how are you thinking about, you know, Google trying to basically eat into this space? I think it's a, not just a problem with us across the board. You look at the hotel industry, you look at the airlines, you know, how they've done each of the different plays and, and now also into the tours and activity space and more of the attractions and, and different things. Multi-day tours is not yet on their radar, but uh, it definitely could be at some stage uh, in packages and, and different things. It's Google and Facebook. I mean, acquisition, customer acquisition, yeah. uh, they're your two main sources. Like, uh, and so it is concerning for sure. And I think that does keep us yeah. up at night of how do, we, how do we channel, how do we acquire customers from somewhere different to those two channels. And it's very difficult in today's world. I think the ones who can somehow be innovative in that and work or crack that, I think will succeed. And I think there's no silver bullet or no one I don't think is who's worked it out yet because everyone would jump on that straight away. But yeah, I think it's just an iterative process of trying different channels, different things. And you know, it's also about brand. You know, and I think that's where you look at booking, you look at Expedia and we're very much trying mm. to, to build their brand more so mm. that you know, they were having or could eliminate how much they were paying out to Google. But brand is such an expensive play and you know, it's not something that a startup or a scale-up can really do easily. It's definitely something that yeah. does 
I wouldn't say keep me up at night, but uh, it, it is definitely uh, forefront in our thoughts in the leadership team and, and with marketing and, and everything of how do we how do we think about this differently? I think the whole industry needs to come together. It's not a tour radar problem or any one company. It's the industry needs to think about how to tackle Google. Well, great. So funding, obviously raising funds in this environment, if you're a travel startup is probably close to impossible, but I did hear there are a few companies. There's a German startup that raised 100 million Series D round recently. So how easy do you think it'll be for travel startups to raise money in this environment or just going forward? Do you feel travel startups need to do anything differently when they're looking to raise money? It's going to be a different story depending on the size of the startup or just the stage. it's very uh, challenging times for any founders who are trying to do that right now. I think it was Omeo who actually raised the round recently. And I think yeah. when you look at the way they phrase things, it, it sounds like it was a significant amount for, for acquisitions and then how can they grow during this time. And so that's probably the angle that they've gone mm-hmm. is saying, okay, well, while the market is weakened, can we actually be building the business in a different way? So, you know, through an M&A type strategy, I think when you're in a bigger organization and you have a clearer path to profitability or, or that you're already profitable and that sort of thing, I think it's probably decent to, you know, because mm. travel's not going to go away. It's just a question yeah. of how long. You've got to find the investors who who have yeah. that longer term belief and know that it will bounce back. And and if you're in the right space, mm. we'll bounce back harder. There's going to be a lot less people around. Yeah. So as in competitive, the market share that you have today is going to be significantly higher, yeah. even though the overall volume will be lower. The percent of the market that you can own is actually significantly mm. more because there's less players in the market. So I, I think if you can show a path and there's a, a belief, definitely I think you can still raise funds. Cool. I was going to ask you some just general questions outside of Tour Radar itself. So what's your favorite multi-day touring experience? I, I think for this one, I have to say the very first one that I did because that probably kind of stirred a little bit of the interest into it. It was in Ireland, actually. So it was like a seven-day all-of-Ireland adventure. It was on a bus, like 15 people, uh, and got to go through Northern Ireland down right down to the southern coast and stuff and met some amazing people. It was the, the first trip that I did when I got to Europe after coming from Australia. So yeah, I have to probably say that one. (laughs) So I've traveled a lot and I love traveling. When we're looking at booking experiences, we're always trying to figure out Mm -hmm. how can we really experience this place like a local rather than the touristy thing. Mm -hmm. Of course, if you go to India, you want to see Taj Mahal or whatever, but how do you get that local experience? Yeah, I think that's the one thing that's really misunderstood about tours. And I've traveled a lot as well. So you go to a place and you'll turn up in a city and you walk around on your own and you'll just skip over kind of everything really. You know, you, you'll kind of experience the feeling of it. What you do when you go on, say, a, a group tour, or when a local shows you around their own village or city or anything like that, the stories that they can tell and the, that local relevance that they have and you've just probably walked past just this, you know, building that just looks like a building, but you actually get explained it, the history of it or what happened yeah. there or what it might have been a historical moment that, you know, was life, life changing for the world that happened to that particular thing. And you just walk past it if you weren't actually, you know, being told. And I think that's the benefit of taking a, like a, a tour experience is that you have someone who knows it, they're passionate about it and they love sort of sharing that, you know, with, with other people. And I think that's something where I found, especially for food, if you go on your own, 
you walk into whatever you see on TripAdvisor or whatever you see on Foursquare or whatever else, and you don't know if it's good or not. Right. It could probably be the tourists go there. But if you then go with a, yeah. a local who says, you know, this is my cousin's family's business and whatever else, and then you're eating, yeah, it's different. I, I think that's a, the one thing is still we haven't done a good enough job in the multi-day touring industry of explaining this and understanding the true experience that you get through doing one of these uh, trips. Actually, I totally agree with you. I went to Morocco and we had someone Mm -hmm. recommended this guy to be a tour guide. And if I think about my whole trip and we went to the desert, we went to the Atlas Mountain, we did all these things. But if I had to think about the one thing that stands out in my mind was on the way to the desert, he took us to his house because it was on the way and his mother and sister cooked us a meal. And, and it was so amazing. Everything about that meal and the, his house and the conversation just stands out. And you're right in that when I look at most websites for tour experiences, I don't think any of them ever talk about that. We did a big campaign last year uh, called Tour of the World, where we actually sent two travelers around the world and we filmed the entire thing. And the purpose of that was to try and show and, and do that. And the footage we have, like 13 terabytes or something like that, of just drone footage and all these local experiences. And, and it's so difficult to, to still get that out and, and share that in a way, again, because it's expensive to advertise that. So it's a challenge I think the industry yeah. needs to somehow uh, overcome. And, and we're definitely thinking about that a lot. I tell people a lot, we sell tours and, and then they're like, oh, tours, you know, umbrella, you know, and, and just don't think that there's actually these really amazing yeah. um, experiences. That's why we say life enriching experiences that you have on these, these trips. So, yeah. Nice. I'm going to remember that. Okay. You mentioned Audible and reading. would love to hear some recommendations. What are some books you've read recently or in the past that have really made an impact? Yeah, there's a few. I think probably for more recently, uh, the one that I did read was from Simon Sinek. So it was The Infinite Game. So that was actually super interesting. It gives you a bigger thinking. I think you get so caught up in, in the day-to-day of running the business or you know trying to improve. And it was a nice kind of uh, way to just broaden the mind and definitely recommend it to entrepreneurs and, and people out there to read it. The other one I'd say is, and our team grew and as it had to become a manager and a leader, you need to be empathetic. You need to really understand and be there for your team. And one book I read, or actually it was on Audible as well, was The Power of Vulnerability. Brené Brown. Yeah. So that's a remember now. So it was really, really good. So from that aspect, it just opens your mind a little bit on that. And, and so I'd recommend that. And then yeah, one final one was, which I read really towards the beginning of when we started hiring was called who and i won't say that we followed it you know word for word but there was a lot of things when i was really in the early days of hiring helped a lot and it did sort of help with how you found people and how you screened yeah. and all that kind of stuff so yeah that was a really good one yeah. nice i've read that one i haven't read the other oh. two so i'm going to put that on my list of books to read Well, um, Travis, thank you so much for being on my show. I thoroughly enjoyed our conversation. I wish you the very best. I'm definitely going to go check out some of your multi-day tours. And I'm really looking forward to starting to travel again. I miss that a lot. And I think, like you said, people will want to travel. So this is just going to be a blip. It's not going to disappear. It's uh, just been uh, postponed a little bit. (laughs) Thank you. Yeah, no, absolutely. Thanks for having me. 